Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Anna Bull from Portsmouth, where she's a senior lecturer in sociology, uh, about a new book, Class Control and Classical Music. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. I'm delighted to be here. Um, This is a fascinating book. Um, I think it speaks directly to many of our sort of current issues, both in um, culture, but also in um, society in terms of kind of social inequalities and it also brings in a whole range of different ideas you know bits of history bits of sociological uh field work uh, it's got an ethnographic uh, element to it uh, and in some ways it's a really sort of personal book as well as being an academic book and i guess that's the place to start with it really in in terms of the story about why you've written it and why um you were kind of interested in classical music yeah, sure. So, I mean, the book is not about me. The book is about the data I gathered from the young people in my study, but it's genesis and the questions that I've asked and tried to answer in the book come out of my own experience. Um, so as you can perhaps tell, I'm, um, I grew up in New Zealand and studied uh, piano and cello from a young age. And then when I left school, I went to study music at university, performance music on both of those instruments. And I became a professional classical musician. Now, that is the short version of the story. The longer version of the story is that that process involved um, a lot of, I guess, highs and lows, but a lot of questioning about the role of classical music in society. Perhaps, particularly growing up in New Zealand, uh, which was a bicultural, still is is becoming a more confident bicultural and multicultural country, to be playing classical music, which was really uh, limited to this small bubble of white, mostly middle-class uh, young people who were involved in the classical music scenes that I was participating in and the gendered authorities of, of, of control and hierarchies of power. I felt uncomfortable about these for many, many years and I didn't really have a language to articulate that discomfort. Um, and I moved to the UK uh, and ended up studying and working as a pianist in Scotland. Um, and these questions became even more urgent uh, in the UK context perhaps because I could see around me, you know, living in Glasgow at the time, I could see class much more clearly, see the kind of inequalities um, and, and, and started to ask the questions about how this was affected or what was classical music saying to these inequalities? What was the relationship between classical music and the rest of the world? So I actually eventually quit music and went back to university and actually did another undergraduate degree in sociology. And I really did not intend to write about music at all. But through various, you know, through meeting um, a supervisor, Georgina Bourne, who encouraged me in this direction, I did end up writing about my own experience and then carrying out research, um, going kind of going back to my formative years as a teenage classical musician at that age where you're so passionate about what you do and it's such an important social as well as musical scene and such a formative time for your identity, trying to go back and ask some of those questions that I couldn't make sense of at the time. I mean, we're going to get into all of those uh, sorts of questions, particularly that big issue about 
the relationship between uh, the art form or the, the, the genre and broader sort of society and social inequality. But it is probably worth pausing just to ask, what are we actually talking about? Um, so one of the things that the book does quite early on um, that um, in, so, in some ways kind of seems quite obvious, but it's quite important, is to ask what actually is classical music? Um, and that matters actually because later on in the book you talk about the uh, particular kind of status this music has and the relationship that your interviewees and society has. So yeah, what, what are we actually talking about when we talk about classical music? Yeah, so it's an important um, theoretical question for the book as well as an empirical question. I use the term classical music rather than Western art music, which is a term that musicologists tend to use. Um, for a variety of reasons, but most simply, that's actually the term that my research participants used, and that's a kind of vernacular term in common parlance. Um, and it's interesting because it's one of those social phenomena that means something very clearly to the people who use it. People know what it means, and yet what it means is not necessarily spelled out. Um, uh, and in fact, if you don't mind a brief plug for a forthcoming paper I'm working on with Christina Schaaf, uh, we're actually exploring classical music as a genre and drawing on genre theory um, to think about what you know what musicians see it as. Um, so that wasn't something I necessarily um, asked my participants in this book, but I do kind of set it up by saying that there were particular genre uh, conventions of the genre that were very, very clear in my research. So, for example, it's uh, usually played without amplification; it's acoustic. And I think that uh, that lack of um, use of technology is quite, or of amplification is quite important. There are certain instruments that are used um, that are associated with the genre, and there's a certain canonic repertoire. So, you know, musicology has spent a lot of time thinking about how that canon has been formed. Um, and also, really importantly for the book, there's a distinctive pedagogy. Um, and there's a lot of work in music education looking at, um, for example, Lucy Green's work, looking at how the pedagogies of classical music and the value system of classical music have been applied to other genres. Um, and the, and the, the pedagogy, which is kind of rooted in this master-apprentice model, has a, has, has a distinctive form of social relations, a kind of hierarchy of authority, which I explore can be also seen um, in youth music re uh, rehearsals. Um, and then finally, as I delineate in the book, there's also an emotional repertoire to, um, that's distinctive to classical music. Um, so classical music is seen as serious um, or deep as opposed to other genres such as pop, which are kind of fun. Um, and this kind of idea of emotional depth is really, is really important um, for my argument. Um, but, yeah, I think that thinking about where the boundaries of classical music are, are, um, are the boundaries around what counts as classical music, is important because these boundaries define how value is stored in this space. And by value, I mean various things, but this is also just simply economic value in the form of disproportionate amounts of state funding that go to classical music. So between 80 and 85% of Arts Council England music funding goes to classical music, opera, music, theatre. Um, so there's, you know, there's much higher amounts of, um, of state funding that go to classical music, but there's also value... Uh, within the space um, in terms of cultural or symbolic capital, um, and these can be translated into other forms of value. So we need to name classical music. We need to describe its boundaries and what it is and, and explore where its boundaries lie in order to figure out how it stores value within its spaces. And, and what does your sort of um, sociological take 
on classical music. Tell us then what what's the um, the, the kind of um, big sociological idea going on. One of the things I took uh, from the book was how thinking about social class really immediately transforms how we think about classical music. Uh, yeah, so um, perhaps surprisingly, there hasn't been um, you know much theoretical or empirical work exploring these links between class and classical music. Um, there was there's a kind of what I think is a somewhat impoverished argument um, in the UK around um, classical music being middle class because it's too expensive for working class people. And yes, that's absolutely true. There's no denying that. But that's where the argument stops and uh, starts and ends. And in a sense, I wanted to look a little bit deeper and ask why um, is it so expensive? Why is this form of how is this form of culture developed in this way? Um, and um, so, yeah, there are there are distinctive aspects of classical music that are associated with middle class culture um, more generally, as well as its um, as well as its the, the kind of economic barriers. And so, we all, as well as the economic, we also need to pay attention to the social. And so, one of these key ways um, is um, is parenting. And of course, there's a huge pile of sociological literature on um, class and parenting looking at the ways in which in recent decades parenting has been one of the key strategies the middle classes use to reproduce their position for their children. And I did actually intend in the study to look at parenting, but uh, it was too, it made the study too big, so I haven't addressed it explicitly, but I've looked into other studies around this area. And actually, if you look historically at the development of classical music, and what I've argued is that it's the prototype for this intensive parenting, this form of heavy investment um, in, in, in the child's extracurricular activities that uh, works to reproduce the class position. And that's through the Suzuki method, which is a intensive music education method that emerged in post-war Japan, where the mother, uh, it's important that it's the mother, has to learn classical music alongside the child and, um, and, and practice alongside the child. And, of course, actually that's the, the method that I learned by myself. So this, this mode of intensive parenting um, fits very well with um, the types of musical selfhood that are required for classical music as well as um, intensive parenting. So that's kind of one of the ways in which class um, classical music can be linked. Um, and another one, um, which I'll say more about um, uh, later on perhaps, is that thinking about class gives a different, uh, makes visible the idea of respectability or gendered respectability. Um, and so this is make, making visible the ways in which obviously gender inequalities in music are uh, have been discussed a lot in the last couple of years or have come to the fore. But what hasn't been discussed so much is the way that in classical music, when we're talking about respectability, uh, when we're talking about gender rather, we're talking about middle class um, uh, girls and women's experiences. Um, and, and respectability is a way of talking, behaving, dressing, inhabiting the body that signifies that somebody is not working class, that you're middle class. Um, and um, so it's trying to counter and avoid the negative labels of being too loud or too sexual that have historically and still today are used as ways to devalue working class women. So classical music is like the magic bullet for respectability. Um, and if you look at images of classical music performers, you can kind of see the way that they're presented um, on, you know, CD covers, because, of course, classical music listeners still listen to CDs often. Um, you know, Tasman Little is represented as being glamorous without being sexual. 
Um, or if, um, if you look at scandals like the way Vanessa May was uh, represented in the 1990s, she was sexualized and othered for being East Asian. She was breaking the, the, the link between being respectable uh, middle-class young woman and classical music. So that's, you know, that's just one of the cultural um, and social links between classical music and class that I explore in the book. That's obviously bound up with some um, kind of really rich and, and interesting historical analysis uh, that the book does as a sort of ground clearing exercise early on. But the kind of heart of the book is um, this work you did with young people. Um, and this takes place across kind of various sites of both performance and, uh, and education. And I wonder if you could sketch out, maybe you could extend that thought actually about uh, respectability um, into, say, the rehearsal space. Um, for example, like what actually goes on in, in in rehearsals. You talk in the book about this idea about uh, controlled excitement being crucial to the rehearsal space. Yeah. So my actual fieldwork and the research was carried out in a county in the southeast of England. And I um, carried out research with four youth classical music ensembles, um, two youth orchestras, a youth choir and a youth opera group. Um, And I used my musical skills to participate in the youth orchestras. Um, I was a rehearsal pianist for the youth opera group, um, but for the youth choir, they didn't let me sing. So I was just observing rehearsals for that. Um, And then I also interviewed and carried out focus groups with some of the young musicians involved in the groups and also some of the adults running um, these groups. So it's an ethnography in, um, in that I was both um, observing and participating what was going on and then talking to people over a period of time on and off for about 18 months, although it was very bit, bitty. Um, so what actually goes on in rehearsals? I think one of the things that, you know, going back into the space after more than 10 years out of it, really, um, one of the things that really struck me was uh, the kind of the, the pedagogy of the space and what I've called the pedagogy of correction. And, and I was sitting there making notes in one rehearsal, observing, and I just noticed that the only person who was talking was the conductor. And the young people um, were, were just um, um, following his instructions and kind of doing what they were told. Um, and it was, it was really interesting trying to move from being an insider in that space to being an outsider. And one of the phrases that helped me to do this actually was this phrase, uh, controlled excitement. And that was one of, um, that was one of the conductors for one of the youth orchestras in my study. And he was trying to get the the orchestra to kind of play better, basically. And he was saying, come on guys, you know, use the full length of your bow and um, try and kind of get a bit of sound and you need to play with controlled excitement. And this was, I thought, was quite an interesting phrase. And um, and I came to the to realise through looking at some historical material on the history of rehearsals, um, and I came across a similar idea in the nineteenth century: this idea of precision and dynamic extremes, which seemed to be characteristic uh, of of classical music's aesthetic. And so I suggested that this idea of controlled excitement is one of the characteristic dispositions of classical music. So this is about the body being controlled uh, and still, but then also being able to, passion and excitement, being able to emerge from this controlled body. Um, and so there were some clear links with, uh, with race and in particularly with whiteness here. So the majority of the young people in my study were white and um, 
uh, race wasn't something that I was intending to look at or, or, or whiteness. But actually, in order to understand what was going on with this kind of controlled and disciplined white body, um, um, work on whiteness did prove to be really, really helpful. And um, in terms of this controlled excitement, one of the th- things that became obvious as I observed more rehearsals was the way in which the body was required to have this controlled stillness only in European repertoire, i.e. white repertoire. Um, but when the groups in my study played non-European repertoire, such as jazz medleys or Latin American repertoire, or in one group they played a set of so-called African songs, and those, for those repertoires they were told to move, they were actually choreographed into movement. So when they were playing music that uh, non-white musics um, that they were they were required to bring the body back into the frame in a kind of racialized dichotomy. So by examining in rehearsals the ways in which the body was controlled and choreographed and disciplined, we can see these historical dispositions of whiteness becoming visible. Um, you you mentioned the um, the intersection of, of class and race there, and a, a, another of these sort of um, intersections that the book is interested in is with gender and I might pick up on you you know that scene that you sketched of you know the conductor uh being the sort of focal point everybody paying attention um and and it's very interesting that um role of the conductor um because gender is absolutely crucial to this and and particularly the kind of masculinized form um of the conductor so it'd be good to hear a, a bit about that kind of um I suppose intersection of of uh, class and gender, but also at the same time the sort of specifics um, of how things like power work with conductors. Yeah, so as I mentioned, um, in rehearsals, you know, one person mainly gets to talk, and that's usually a conductor. Um, and all the conductors in my study were male, so some of them were professional conductors and some of them were amateurs who were trying to get experience by conducting youth music groups. Um, and Rehearsals were characterised by what I've called a pedagogy of correction, which I've argued is central to classical music, uh, you know, to learning to be a classical musician. And this is the idea of getting it right. This is the idea that there's a, there's a sense that accuracy and precision are really crucial parts of um, the aesthetic of classical music. Um, they're what, part of what makes it beautiful, part of what makes a successful performance. Um, and that can obviously be contrasted with other genres where you might make a mistake and then turn it into an expressive gesture. So this um, pedagogy of correction um, was visible in rehearsals in that the main substance of rehearsals was the conductor you know, running through things and then correcting um, any errors or, 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 or going over bits to make sure that there wouldn't be any errors um, in the performance. And the young people in my study would say, yes, of course, we ask questions all the time, we contribute. Uh, but when I observed rehearsals, I actually didn't see that happening. Um, but to think about gender in this space, so there were kind of axes of inequality, as I've described them, between the conductors and the young people in my study. And for the young women, gender was one of these axes. But it was also age, so he was usually older than them, than the musicians. And there was also an inequality of expertise. He usually had more knowledge than them. And the young people's respect for his authority was based in a large part on this expertise. So I think this tells us two things about middle-class norms. So first of all, I think there's a continuity between this huge trust in authority that the young people had in my study and the middle-class site that it was occurring in. So more widely, um, 
um, if you look at studies of education, um, particularly schools, this trust in institutional authority is very clear. The middle classes will, um, you know, defer to the teachers, or may not defer, but they will trust the expertise of the teachers. Um, um, whereas working class um, families are maybe less likely to have to find that as a norm. I mean, this trust was manifested really clearly in rehearsals and performances. So it was almost like uh, watching a rehearsal was like a performance of trust where the young people would be hanging off every tiny gesture that the conductor made and responding to it. But um, I think, you know, perhaps even more important is the way that gendered authority was experienced uh, within this relationship. And this was particularly visible in the cathedral choral tradition, um, which was um, a kind of tradition that one of the groups in my study was, was um, drawing on. And that's a distinctive type of authority. Um, there was a norm of using sexualized humor and using charisma as a form of power. And interestingly, the young women experienced this charisma uh, differently to the young men, or perhaps it's not surprising if it was also characterized by sexualized humor, which you know, was highly problematic in the scene. Um, so all the young people um, in this particular group really hero worshipped their conductor. They just thought he was amazing and, you know, he was an excellent uh, musician and conductor. But inter interestingly, the young women were sometimes actually scared of him um, or they had much more complex uh, reactions to his charisma and to his authority. Well, on the other hand, the young men could imagine being him, they could imagine becoming him, and in fact, they were more likely to already be conducting or um, becoming conductor or wanted to conduct. For the young women, the way that they inhabited their bodies seemed to close off the options for becoming a conductor. So they couldn't aspire to become him. They had to have um, different reactions to him. And this is perhaps characterised most um, um, clearly by a response from two of the young people um, um, in, a, in a focus group I was holding. So one of them, I was just asking them, what do you like about being in this group? And they were telling me how great their conductor was and how much they thought, you know, how brilliant they thought he was. And one of the young women said, sometimes I feel like I'm his dog, but in a good way. Um, so, you know, just this idea of wanting to be obedient and submissive and actually enjoying that as far as I could tell. And then one of the young men said, it's like being in the military, but even better. So he was kind of drawing on masculinized notions of command and authority um, that, you know, that were more positive potentially because he could actually move up into that position of authority. Or at least uh, you know, the young men were more likely to uh, to say that they were interested in conducting and, and were carrying out, um, getting practice as conductors. I mean, th these hierarchies, I, th I think you've laid them out really sort of um, clearly. And this is, you know, the kind of classic job of uh, sociology to, you know, sort of make these seemingly kind of natural and, and taken for granted um, inequalities clear in, in terms of, you know, how they operate and their, their social consequences as well. But one of the great kind of criticisms of um, sociological work around culture is, well, what about the cultural kind of object itself? And I think the book does quite a good job uh, of engaging with that and almost sort of preempting that criticism in, in a couple of ways. One is by thinking about uh, the genre, um, and, and maybe we'll talk about that to wrap up. But the other is with uh, this case study of um rehearsals and, and performances for the magic flute uh, and it's again where you sort of tease out questions of gender as much um, as questions of class and it'd be interesting to to hear about that particular case study 
Yeah, so one of the groups my study was putting on um, this particular opera, The Magic Flute, and, um, uh, you know, um, there was a lot I could say both about gender and class um, in that case study, but I focused on gender uh, because that was the most, there was some, it was some very, very compelling data coming out of that case study. And perhaps, you know, for me, what was actually very surprising was the incredibly positive and empowering effects of singing opera on young women's body image. So in interviews, um, and as I got to know some of the young people over time, um, you know, as I asked them, you know, these kind of open-ended questions, you know, what do you enjoy about being in this group or what's your experience of being in this group? It turned out that, you know, quite a few of the young women found that the experience of making a huge, loud sound with their bodies um, actually counted the negative body image and in some cases, um, you know, kind of um, mental illness around body image um, that they were experiencing. And so this was this was hugely, um, you know, this was, this was just like wonderful finding um, that was having such a powerful effect for them. Um, but but despite despite that, there were some aspects of the scene that counted that positive um, impact for for young women. So if you don't know the plot of the Magic Flute, it is um, <laughs> it is very gendered, I suppose you could say. Um, and there was one scene in particular. Um, yeah, I think it's um you know in musicology there's discourse about Magic Flute being you know the kind of triumph of male power over women. So that's the kind of you know extent um, of what we're talking about. And there's one particular scene where the baddie, who's um, called Monostatos, um, attempts to rape the, uh, the the protagonist, a princess called Pamina. And it's actually supposed to be a funny scene. Um, and so here was I sitting in the corner, being the rehearsal pianist, um, while this was being rehearsed. And later on, when I um, after one of those rehearsals, when I interviewed one of the young women playing um, the role of, of the princess. She said, yeah, it's, it's horrible. I'm lying there on the ground and I have to just lie there and not react. And he's singing about how he's going to rape me. It freaks me out. Um, and part, partly what this was about, or, um, or one of the things she also talked about in relation to this, was she was wanting to go on to be an opera singer. And she was, she'd actually been warned off or warned about the industry and about the sexual harassment and sexual violence that can occur in the industry. And she'd been told to kind of basically be careful by someone who she'd had a lesson with. And so she linked this in and she, you know, she talked about um, going, going into work in these institutional conditions where sexual harassment and sexual violence, um, you know, are kind of seemingly a well-known occurrence and also representing an, um, um, an opera and a character where sexual violence is normalised and minimised. Um, so this was just one example of how gender was playing out uh, in quite complex ways in this case study. Um, so, you know, for me, I was thinking, okay, well, actually, there could be, you know, how can we recoup this? And would, the, would it be possible to make changes to the canon, to the repertoire, to the music, to actually um, think about how you could do this work? more safely or more positively with young people because you know the people you know the women running this group were feminists they were creating a space where feminism could be openly discussed they were absolutely on board with um these kinds of discussions but where the idea of change fell down was around this idea of fidelity to the musical score and so uh you know classical music this is a absolutely foundational um idea that you have to reproduce the rich 
to the score in the way that the composer and uh, and this was something that the um, you know all of the young people in my study um, agreed with and supported, and they didn't think that actually necessarily making changes to the score was um, would be appropriate, and even in order to try and kind of um, update some of the racist, classist, sexist texts such as this one. So we're kind of stuck in this loop where people have this reverence towards performing the score as the composer intended. And yet we have this legacy of um, very, very problematic um, works from, you know, from the past. Um, and this was despite the fact that, well, firstly, as Taraskin has argued and, and Daniel H. Wilkinson has demonstrated, we're not performing uh, works in the way the composer intended. Um, so it's a kind of a myth to start with. Um, that could actually be quite easily proven in the case of anything later than Brahms. And we've got recordings of, you know, from the late 19th century onwards. Um, and despite this, actually, there had been some changes to the score to make it appropriate. You know, with operas, you do sometimes make cuts. There have been some changes to the voicing to make it appropriate for um, for the young singers. So this disc, this ideology of fidelity to the score was both one that was already being challenged but could not be challenged. But that meant that the space for critical discussion of these questions was very severely limited. If that's like one example of your detailed sort of um, art form analysis, the, the other is um, by going back to the young people um, and thinking through what classical sort of means to them. And, and in some ways, the um, the example of the magic flute gives this sense of, you know, maybe the sort of uh, struggle over um, what can and, and can't be done to classical and, uh, you know, the extent to which particular things are venerated, you know, stuck in time forever. But at the same time, and, and you've, you've touched on this already, there is this commitment from the young people to classical as almost a sort of like master genre. And it, and it was something that bound them together as uh, as a community. Yeah, so this was kind of really around the idea that I mentioned earlier of emotional depth. Um, so one of the key ways in which classical music was seen, um, particularly by the young people, was uh, as being valuable was because of this emotional experience that it enabled. It, it was seen as having emotional depth and affording this kind of emotional experience that other genres did not. Um, and so this allowed them to form a kind of community around those who could recognise and experience this emotional depth. And they were kind of like-minded people, as one as one young person described it. Um, so, yeah, this idea of emotional depth, I link it into the history of bourgeois subjectivity. Um, so this idea of interiority, as Charles Taylor has described it. And if you look at the history of classical music reception, there's a shift from these kind of noisy, chatty audiences who are just, you know, hanging out at a concert to um, in the early 19th century, early to mid-19th century, that shifts towards silent contemplation, um, the idea of sitting in reverent silence to listen to music. And that's um, and so, you know, that's, that can be linked to this idea of, um, of interiority, of some people having an inner depth, um, an emotional depth that others don't. And Bev Skeggs has argued that this is a classed resource, this complex, deep sense of subjectivity is afforded to those who have the freedom and the education to narrate their experience in this way. Um, and I think at the time I was writing that chapter, I was reading a lot of Anthony Trollope because he was just quite comforting to, you know, to read. But then 
the more I wrote about class and the more I wrote about this idea of interiority, the more I noticed that his characters, um, he, you know, he's really reproducing this very, very clearly. All his middle class and, you know, um, genteel characters are allowed to have complex um, inner lives. Um, and then his working class characters or lower middle class characters were not afforded this kind of in, interior, dialogue, interior monologue and these interior kind of complexity of emotional experience. Um, so I've argued that this intense emotional experience of classical music um, creates a sense of community uh, with others. So when you're sharing what, you know, what might even be your deepest, most intimate emotional experience, you know, if you're, if you're 18 maybe, <laughs> that you've ever had, and then actually you're playing in a large group, an orchestra or a choir, and you're sharing this with other people around you, um, this, so this creates a really powerful sense of community. Um, and for the young people, uh, classical music was just as much a social scene as it was a musical scene. So the, you know, they were absolutely there for the music, but they were there to share the music with like-minded others, with people who were from similar backgrounds. So most of them were from what I've called professional middle-class backgrounds. So their parents were in professional jobs. Um, there were some who were more who are called kind of upper middle class, and some who are called lower middle class. But the majority were from this professional middle class. They were meeting others who'd been to similar schools, who were from similar families, they recognised that similarity of social trajectory in each other. And they recognised other people who would have this, who were having the same kinds of emotional, um, emotional responses to this music. Um, so it created what I've called a community in sound, where this, where this emotional depth and this interiority is shared with others to create a powerful sense of community. And so you can see why people defend classical music as a universal good so fervently because this experience was was very powerful for many people. That gives us hints, I think, of the um, maybe balanced kind of take uh, that the book has tried to uh, to put forward. You know, we we spent you know most of the course of our discussion you know really sort of um, laying out the problems of class, race, and gender. Um, that are in both, you know, classical music teaching, classical music uh, communities, classical music as, as a genre. But there are some elements and, you know, that example of community and, and the way it cuts both ways as inclusive and exclusive. There, there are some elements of classical that you think, you know, maybe have sort of critical and transformative uh, potential. And, and it'd be interesting to, to sort of end on that note, I think, around maybe what we can uh, reconstruct, what we could salvage, uh, what we might defend uh, in classical music. Yeah, and that's a difficult one uh, for me personally because um, as someone whose identity was very closely bound up as, you know, in this classical music scene and has distanced myself from it, um, it's very hard to get away from the emotional entanglements, I suppose you could say. Um, but, yeah, discussions of the critical potential of classical music um, seem to centre on the concept of autonomy of the music from um, social concerns. And so Georgina Bourne argues, and I follow her in this, that classical music's idea of autonomy um, is, is problematic. Um, you know, the idea that classical music is a universal social language that anyone can understand that you know you'll be if you if you hear Bach on the street and you've never heard it before, then suddenly you'll be filled with a great sense of peace. You know that kind of argument. Um, but then um, others, such as Paul Harper Scott, um, builds on Adorno to argue that in fact this autonomy can be a space of critique that's outside capitalism. So classical music is a non-commodified form. Obviously, that's arguable. 
um, and um, and therefore it can be a space of critique of, of capitalist society. Um, so I've kind of engaged with this to say, right, even if autonomy in this Adornian sense is present in the text itself, uh, which is debatable, it's not necessarily present in the practices that create the aesthetic, that, that, that reproduce the text, I guess you could say. So these practices, as I show throughout the book, reproduce identities that centred on investment in the future, order, hierarchies, control of the body, um, these bourgeois subjectivities. Um, and so you really have to look at the practices of classical music and what's done with the text to see if it really is the site or can be a site of critical and transformative potential. So currently the boundaries around classical music preserve it as a middle-class space. Um, so, you know, my main argument really overall is that classical music requires this long-term investment of time, money and effort. It's got very difficult instruments and repertoire. And the aesthetic of the music itself upholds the boundary as to who's allowed in the space um, and who's not. But this boundary, rather than being in physical space, like if you have a gated community or you have you know, a private school, um, which are other forms of middle class or upper class boundary drawing, the boundary is actually invisible because it's in the music itself. Um, because the, the, the ideals of beauty in this tradition require these high levels of technical skill, these, this difficult music on difficult instruments. Um, and so this is a very convenient way of retaining classical music as a predominantly middle-class space. Um, you can argue that working class or racially minoritized young people um, who haven't had access to the kind of 10, 15 years of one-to-one tuition that you require to get to a level to get into music college, they just don't have the technical skills, they don't have the keyboard skills to get into these institutions, so it's not the institution's fault. So I'm suggesting that perhaps the aesthetic boundaries of classical music need to be loosened, or the aesthetic um, ideals, um, and classical music needs to open up dialogue, so that's, you know, kind of musical dialogue with other genres. And this is often in, class- in classical music being dismissively called crossover music. Um, but instead, we require we, re, we need to recognise that classical music takes place in a space where value is stored, certainly in the UK context. Um, and we've got to think about how to open up that value so it's shared with other genres and other social groups. And perhaps ironically, this um, the imperative towards this already exists in cultural policy. Um, um, the Arts Council of England created a case for diversity, which has been around since about 2012. Um, is quite a good, I think, description of how this process could work. But to my knowledge, it hasn't really been seriously taken up by major classical music um, institutions. And I think it requires a politici- us to politicise the aesthetic of classical music to, to recognise that this aesthetic is historically formed um, through the 19th century institutions that were set up by the emerging bourgeoisie um, that were used um, to legitimise their position. And so actually its history um, shows us its political, um, um, you know, its politics, and we need to kind of recognise what work the aesthetic is doing politically today. As a final point, this book feels like it's um, perhaps the beginning and also the end of an engagement with um, classical music. Um, you know, it sort of sets a research agenda, but it also might be um, a contribution that you're, you know, sort of 
quite thoroughly bored of and might never want to come back to. So what are you working on in the future? Are you going to be doing more work around um, sociology of, of classical music or are you uh, working on various other projects that are, you know, sort of different or maybe actually related? Yeah, so I am doing some bits um, on going forward on classical music and equality and diversity in particular, hoping to um, pull together an edited volume on equality and diversity in the classical music profession. Um, and also, as I mentioned, Christina Schaff and I are writing about classical music as a genre, trying to theorise that. Um, but in terms of my empirical um, work, the, the main work I'm doing at the moment is actually on sexual harassment in higher education. And that's across all higher education institutions, not just looking at music. So I'm a director of the 1752 group, which is a research and lobby organisation addressing sexual harassment in universities. Um, and that's quite an urgent political issue at the moment. So that's taking a lot of my time and energy. But I do want to bring that question back to classical music in hopefully in the near future and start and, and start looking at how classical music institutions are responding to uh, to sexual harassment. I've already done some work with the um, with the classical music education sector looking at issues of abuse in music education, which has had very, very little work done on it compared to, in sports education, 30 years of research and policy and practice emerging, and music education has somehow just missed the, missed the boat on a lot of this. Um, it's not to say that, uh, you know, they're not, you know, they're obviously following the statutory guidelines, but thinking about how the culture that I've described in this book uh, lends itself to abuse of power um, needs to be much more thoroughly interrogated, and, the, you know, the, the small amount of data that I've, that I've written about in the book, which I haven't talked about today, about young people's experiences of bullying in one-to-one lessons, um, um, you know, suggests that this is um, a really, really important site to be explored further. So yeah, watch this space.